0: I was uh, in the gym this morning very, very early and I got finished with my workout and I went into the locker room to take off my clothes to go and take a shower. And uh, there was one other woman in the very aisle where I was um, getting dressed as I came in. And uh, she was getting dressed and I was taking off my clothes. Another woman came in and she had um, been showering, coming in to get dressed. And you could tell by her body language, I didn't know either of these women, could just tell by the body language of this woman arriving on the scene, that she was really in a dejected way, you know, everything that you could tell about a person, she just walked in such a really wounded way, and she just really looked down, and this other woman, who apparently must have recognized that they must share this aisle in this locker room quite a lot. So not an intimate of hers, but enough felt uh, enough familiar with her to say, uh, you really don't look in a good way. And uh, the woman who had arrived in this not good way said, I'm really not, um, in a terrible way. And uh, the first woman said, um, would a hug help it all? And uh, so that's actually a whole piece of the story. I just loved it that we are spontaneously so compassionate, clearly they're not friends, but and they're grown-up women, you know, but would a hug help at all. Something that you say to a three-year-old usually, but it was very sweet. Would a hug help at all? And uh, the hurting woman said, no, it wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so the questioner then said, because um, nothing else was coming forth, she said, uh, is it something with the maybe job insecurity? And I thought, that's probably a good guess because there are three things, you know, either our health is in trouble or our relationship is in trouble or our job is in trouble, so it was a pretty good guess. She says, is job insecurity? She said, and the hurting woman said, well, it, maybe that's a big part of it, she said, but I have only myself to blame." So at this point I was really eager to listen to the end <laughs> of the conversation, but clearly I had taken off my clothes and I had to go take a shower. <laughs> so I couldn't just hang out, I was clearly eavesdropping otherwise. So I, I took my towel and I went to take a shower. And while I was in the shower I, thirded, I thought about the line from, uh, Uh, The the Taoist teaching, the person of Tao is not affected by praise or blame, came to my mind. And I thought to myself how my understanding of that has changed over the years. I, I think it's a most profound teaching. The person of wisdom is not affected by praise or blame. And I think in the beginning I used to think that meant the person with wisdom had such equanimity that anybody could say anything at all about them. Whatever, they could be rebuked, someone could tell them they had done a bad job, whatever, and they would have such equanimity that nothing would move them. I have a, a different understanding of it now. I uh, look well here's a story within a story, in um, and I reflected on this all the while I was showering. Uh, uh, ten years ago there was uh, a teaching at, in uh, Tucson, the Dalai Lama did uh, teachings for a week on uh, the Patience Chapter and the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And there were 1,200 people in residence in the Sheraton Tucson for a week, took up the whole hotel, and every day His Holiness taught out of that particular chapter, did one after another verse by verse, read the verse in Tibetan. Did the exegesis of the text in Tibetan, and then the translator translated right next to him into English. And while the translator was translating, the Dalai Lama would appear to be reading the next verse and preparing himself. And the translator translated. And at one point, after many days had gone by, at one point the translator was talking away, and His Holiness sat up and looked at the translator and said, uh, "No, I didn't say that. I." said this. And the translator said to him, no, you actually said this. And he said, no, it's this. And the translator said, no, Your Holiness, it's that. <laughs> and the diorama looked back in the text, and it was actually, it wasn't, it was a small uh, grammatical thing, it wasn't that. But anyway, he looked back in the text, looked it over, looked it over, looked it over, then he looked up, and he laughed, his little laugh, which is, you know, characteristic little laugh, he goes, hey. And they looked at, it and he said, "You're right. I made a mistake. Huh? In front of 1,200 people, it was absolutely nothing to him, and I loved it. I th- I was there for a week. I was exalted for the entire week, and I think that was probably the moment that affected me the most. I made a mistake in front of 1,200 people. If I make a mistake it pains me terribly, I'm mortified, I think about it, worry about how many people, it's nothing to him. And I realize that it's nothing to him because he knows that there's no one there who made the mistake. It's nothing at all. That his sense of a self that he identifies with, the person of wisdom is not affected by praise or blame, by the idea that he or she made a mistake or didn't make a mistake. There isn't anybody there who makes mistakes. Things happen, and sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But it's not a matter of praise or blame. If you don't have an identity that you have to keep buoyed up, you have nothing to worry about. It has even, I was as I was reflecting, this is all in the space of a shower, reflecting about that it's not only a deep awareness of the emptiness of separate self, the non-existence of separate self, but it's also a very deep understanding of karma. What happens, happens. We, when we say, when this woman who had come in and apparently had had a problem on the job, I blame myself for it. Blame is so completely extra, I thought of saying that to her, but I restrained myself. I was hoping that she would get that, because the, the idea when we blame ourselves is I should have done it another way. I could have done it another way. We couldn't have done it another way. How it happened is the only way it could have happened, given the karma of that moment. Sometimes we do things that aren't so skillful. Sometimes we, so to speak, make mistakes. Sometimes we do things that are really hurtful. But it couldn't have been different. It couldn't have been different. In the future it could be different, and in fact the awareness of it was hurtful, it wasn't a wise action, and the feeling the pain of that, I did something that was hurtful, something happened that was hurtful, is actually integral and pivotal to not doing it again. So it's important not to say it doesn't matter. It matters. But there isn't an I who could have done it differently, and it couldn't have happened differently. Right. That's what's extra. What was really amazing is I went back out to get dressed, and these two women are by this point dressed, and great peals of laughter are coming out from that corner of the locker room where I've just left this woman in a very sad shape, so the woman tried to help her out, and apparently profoundly depressed, she said, and they're laughing, and the the really, uh, the woman who had been hurting was saying, you know, that's the first time I laughed in two weeks, I was really happy about that. And I thought to myself, they didn't need my intervention and my Dharma teaching about you know, blame is extra. They did it themselves in the few minutes that I took a shower. And the woman who apparently had made this mistake in her work said, you know, I bet it's all going to turn out for the good, you know, because I really learned from that experience. It wasn't such a cool response that I had, and I, I'm just going to have to deal with it and suck it up and continue on, but I thought, well, people have such fortitude. We're so good. You know, it's so hard to be a person. <laughs> I thought about this praise and blame business and, the, and really want to talk about the sense uh, that I have of understanding that of uh, freedom that happens when we understand that all the protecting of someone in there as if there's someone that needs to be protected from blame, and who feeds on praise, is just so extra. And I want to get there by going back to what Guy said several nights ago now, where uh, he uh, said the the phrase that the Dalai Lama had used. I heard him say that uh, one of the troubles that people get into, people worldwide get into is the trouble, the extra trouble of self-cherishing. And I wanted to talk a little bit about cherishing, about self-cherishing in contrast to other cherishing, and about self-cherishing with a capital S, the cherishing of the notion that there's a separate little person in here, an observer of the show and an owner a writer of the script, an owner, a recipient of everything that happens, that self. So cherishing, self-cherishing, and self, capital S, cherishing. So I thought a little bit about what cherishing means because it's such a lovely word. Um, I thought about uh, treating with kindness is a good um, definition of cherishing, synonym. I think it evokes for me feelings of tenderness. We cherish something that's fragile. We take care of it as a cherished possession. when we feel something is fragile. It brings up I think the natural cherishing capacity of the heart. These two women in the gym were a good example this morning. They don't know each other well. I'm sure they don't because you was the question or needing to feel her way along. But responding, as both of us were, to the fact that this woman had really sad body language. I had a similar experience myself uh, just a little bit ago. I was traveling on the East Coast. I took the train from Philadelphia to New York. Um, I read the paper that was morning, and I, uh, uh, characteristically, I'm, awake and energetic in the morning, I got on the train and uh, I read the newspaper, and the news, as you know, for all these months has been so frightening. And that morning was a particularly scary reading of the news, and um, so very soon into the trip I um, read the newspaper and I felt a wave of such tremendous sleepiness come over me. And I just folded up my newspaper, I put it away. And I knew I needed to take a nap. And I had to be in New York and teach that day. So I said to the young woman next to me, I said, uh, I need to take a nap now. Will you wake me in 20 minutes, please? I need to have some time before we get to New York. And she said, of course. And then she said, are you okay? And I said, I'm okay, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not. (laughs) and my whole sleepiness went out of me didn't it go out of you in that moment wasn't that startling didn't you know that if you were in that kind of a circumstance and the person next to you said no I'm not that we wake up right in that minute I thought about that the story has more but that's really the most important part of the story I think that the natural movement of our heart is in compassionate response to the awareness of suffering. I think it wakes us up from whatever kind of a state, actually pulls us out of ourselves. (gasps) I could help. And in fact, I talked to her for most of the rest of the trip, we talked, can I help you? And she said, well, you know, I read the newspaper earlier this morning indicating the newspaper on my lap, and she said, it's really scary, and we talked about that for a while we came to the end of that conversation, and uh, I, she said, you didn't get to have your nap yet, I'm sorry. I said, no, I'm all right. And I thought that that conversation had ended, and she said, I'm also worried about my job. And so we talked about that for a while, and her job in New York. And I thought to myself, she told me about the project she was doing, I don't know anything about her kind of work, but I realized that what she needed Really, what I needed as well, what we both needed in that moment, was to connect. It didn't matter that I don't know how to do her job, it mattered that I could listen to her, and it mattered that she could say it. I think the truth is that we, none of us are okay. But that's the key question. Are you okay? No, we're not. We are all in lives, as we have been hearing from talk after talk every night, where the fabric of life itself is by its very nature essentially broken, it can't work out. Everything is fragile. Everything that takes form has a limited life, and it's fragile in this life. We have the problems having taken form of needing to keep this body all right, needing to keep the life going, needing to keep keep the job going, needing to keep the relationship going. It, however well we do it, they won't last any of them anyway. It's really a job that we need to be doing and want to be doing and don't want to let go of and suffer in it because we struggle in all the while. It's quite an amazing predicament that we're in. Everything, the body, the life, the relationship, making relentless demands not able to get comfortable the whole life, really, for little bits of time, but it doesn't stay. And on top of that, we each of us have our personal life stories on top of the givens of being in a life, in a body, in a world. We each of us have our own history, our own cultural history, our own family history, our own life experiences. I noticed on the uh, registration form form that this is the first year we have now quite a complex registration form with all kinds of questions and they're appropriate questions. It's really valuable for us to know about any kind of health challenges that people have and it's valuable for us to know about any particular kinds of um, life challenges that people have been presented with that are out of the ordinary. But I I realize as I look at them and it says, Have you ever been abused as a child? Was it this kind of abuse or that kind of abuse? It's tragic what happens to us, really. Just in addition to being a person, in a form, in a life, so many things happen to us. I think often, if we got it, that whether or not we have checked off those abuse questions as yes or no, that we have all of us come through all kinds of challenges to get to be here, it's heroic to be alive, and we are all managing with whatever has happened to us, for some people some lifetimes seem easier than others and fortunate, but everyone has something. I think if we got that, that not only all of us, but the whole world has something, we have a sense suddenly that it's a hospital, really. It's a rehab ward, one large, enormous rehab ward. And we would lower our voices and be much kinder and cherish. It's heroic that people get up day after day and do a life. I think that compassion is what comes in response to that awareness that life is dear and difficult. We really are prepared to respond to that. And the response is completely without um, um, hesitation, complete, what's it called? Uh, Unconditional when we realize how fragile life is, that we really are all, in spite of anything we do, how good care we take of ourselves, gonna die. The phone calls on uh, September 11th, a year and a half ago, of the people who knew they were gonna die, all only said, I love you. Nobody said, I never really liked your (laughs) mother-in-law. You never came on time to appointments, or you didn't take my needs into consideration. Nobody said any of those things. They said, I love you. Because fundamentally, we are all broken, trying so hard to stumble to the finish line. The best thing, the only thing that we can really say to each other is, I love you. Cherish each other in our valiant attempts to do this. There's a line in the Dhammapada that says anyone who realizes impermanence ceases to be contentious. What will we fight about? We are all on the same team. You know, there's a a meditation that's often, that's part of the traditional scripture, charnel ground meditation where um, monks were advised to go and sit in burning grounds to really consolidate their understanding, and sometimes I think I, I think maybe they were part of um, the training of uh, the 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 subdue an attempt to subdue sensual desire uh, for monastics who had taken on the difficult path of uh, uh, eschewing um, giving up personal sensual fulfillment, but Actually, I, I don't think it's that. I, th- I, I think it's just seeing how this that life is very fragile. We die at all ages, in all conditions, and ultimately. So really, the brevity of life—that we haven't got a moment to waste. Sometimes I, I think the, uh, there are several expressions that people use just as a figure of speech that I that ring so harsh on my ears when I hear them. And one of them is the expression, time to kill. Somebody will say, I missed my plane, so I had to kill three hours in the Denver airport or something. I don't think we have a moment to spare, really. I mean, we have such a short life to reconvert our hearts to a completely loving response. They've been frightened out of that. And it's such a short time, it's kind of like a television show many, many decades ago called Beat the Clock. You had to achieve some impossible task within 35 seconds or something. So we have 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 years to achieve this particular task of unlearning the response of bitterness or resentment, contentiousness and habituating ourselves to kindness. It's very short. It's kindness to ourselves as well. Not just kindness to other people. It's really every moment converted to offering solace. Friend of mine was is uh, was is a rabbi was a uh, chaplain right after nine eleven in uh, New York, and the story that uh, he uh, told me that really affected me, uh, that I rem- the image of which I carry with me, is he said uh, his particular task was to go to uh, for months afterwards this particular. Uh, large, large building, I think it was a a harbor building, uh, that was a place where people could come with different kinds of difficulties. If you needed um, to file for social security benefits, if you uh, still hadn't done a death certificate, if you were out of a job and you didn't know how to file for unemployment insurance, whatever problem you had associated with that day, including the problem of personal grief and bereavement. You came there and there were people who were from the social security and people from uh, unemployment and weapons compensation and all different kinds of specialties in that big hangar-like building. And he said the chaplains walk around and uh, they're the people who people talk to uh, and uh, our job is to bring people to the people they need to connect with to get the job they need to have done done. And sometimes they just need to talk to somebody and then we talk to them. So I said, "Um, how do you know? Do you go up to people or uh, uh, how do they know to find you? Uh, He said, well, they find us because we all wear green vests. So I had this image of a big building with certain people walking around in green vests. And I said, "Um, how do you know who to connect with? He said, well, you walk around and you look around and you think to yourself, Who here needs something? You look for the need. And people see you looking, and then they come and talk to you. And I had the image at the time that we should all put on green vests, all of us, the whole world should put on green vests, we should just walk around with green vests, looking at each other and thinking, what do you need, because everybody needs something. And we could look at ourselves too and say, what do you need? I've talked to people today, and yesterday, and the day before, and probably tomorrow, who are, we are all so dear, and we're all so compassionate, and we're all so kind. And often I have to say to people, you remember it needs to be kind to yourself. You could offer yourself some solace. This is very hard work to sit here and look at the pain of your heart. You don't have to do it every second, or you can look at it and say to yourself, I'm in pain, I'm in terrible pain, I'm really in pain, this is the way it feels. Everything that arises passes away, I surely wish this would pass away. (laughs) May I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering. Sometimes people say, should I do metta, should I do vipassana? I think they do each other, and they are each other, if I pay attention. I will wish myself well and hold myself in kindness when I need to. Sometimes it takes me a long time to do it. I think because, it may be true for you, it is true for me. It's hard for me to recognize that I'm in pain. It's a little scary. So I think I wait for a while. Maybe I'm hoping that someone else will notice and take care of me. Maybe that's a part of it. Ultimately, it remains for me to notice and say to myself, Sylvia, you're in pain. I am. What do you want? May I be peaceful, may I be happy. So I thought, I want to talk a little bit about other cherishing and self-cherishing by starting with um, the reflection of the Dalai Lama of uh, why it's very helpful to think about all the other people in the world, the six billion other people in the world. He taught it particularly in terms of, as I, when I heard it, in terms of thinking of the good fortune of other people in the world. He said if you cherish other people as if they're your kin, you have a very much larger possibility of experiencing joy in your life because the moments of joy in one's own life are brief and uh, intermittent. Instead if you have, instead of just your own joy to be uh, delighting in, if you add in six billion other people, you get a much better chance of spending some time joyful. I mean, the odds get better for it. But I, and I'm thinking about it today, and I was thinking as well, though, that it works both ways, because if I take in those six billion people as kin, then I take in their suffering as well. If I look up and I see the joys here and here and here and here, I cannot do other but see the pain and the suffering of all of them. And the list that Guy did the other night of the half of the world that goes to sleep hungry and the more than half that doesn't have a safe place to live and the numbers involved in war going on right now the numbers of people who are sick with medicines in the world that can treat them that don't have access to it. Everyone who is suffering. Sometimes people leave retreats though, and they say, I'm afraid to go in the world, I'm afraid to go back, I'm afraid I've become too vulnerable. And I really um, tried to say in the kindest way, uh, I actually don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. I am hopeful that we will become too vulnerable, that the whole world will become too vulnerable. I think if the whole world became too vulnerable, we would all sit down and cry together and then do it in a better way, this life. Cherish each other more. Heal this planet from the poverty and the starvation. Teach everyone to read. Tell everyone, go home and have dinner with your family and they could. But looking up from myself, uh, when His Holiness said, look at the other people on the planet, it's the other people on the planet who I think keep saving me from getting lost in the morass of my own pain. like that, the story of speaking out to that woman in the train. Would you uh, wake me from my nap?" And the two of us, you know, when when I got off in New York and left her, we talked practically all the way there, I realized that we had not told each other our names. And it didn't matter, Hasn't, it's no significance, whatever her name is. We had connected on the level of being human beings in the world, with pain and with worry. Everybody's the same, global pain and personal pain, my life, my work, my job, my relationship, and the world in pain. There's a line from the Book of Job that says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and in my flesh will I see God. I have a sense that embodies. My Redeemer always liveth in the form of the person next to me. That it's always the person next to me. If I look out from the ongoing arisings that make up this whole story, that make me up and down and in and out, and desperate and elated and deflated and excited, if I look out over the fence of my own limits, my redeemer from the constant harangue of my own story is always the person next to me. Are you okay? No. Are you okay? No. Let's talk to each other. Then we're both okay. We redeem each other. Person next to me represents, I think, the lifeboat that lifts me out of drowning in my own grief. But I have to reach for the lifeboat and one of the things I realized is every time I reach for the lifeboat and someone gives me their hand, they're not just holding mine, I'm holding theirs as well. Both hands get held. I think it's about connections and reaching. In the actual life with the actual hands, or alone, in the sanctity and privacy of our own hearts and our metta practice. We can be here reaching out to the whole world and touching them. We can live in seclusion and hold the whole world in our heart. It's not about being in a certain place or living in a certain way, it's about looking out and saying I'm part of this whole folk, this whole world of people, this whole plane of existence of human beings. So, in this whole plane of existence of human beings, there are certainly different bodies. So there's each of them having a name. One of the things that uh, one of the, the one of the insights of uh, this practice that uh, most confounded me in the beginning when I first heard about it was the insight of no separate self. Anatta. And now we're talking about the big self, this is certainly a separate body, popped onto the world on a certain day, it'll pop out of it on a certain day. But the sense that we all have, that uh, there's someone who lives in here, who is looking out through these eyes, or who hears between these ears, who is the author of this play and the hero or the heroine of it or the victim, um, that there's some peace in here that is separate from everything else, that lives somehow in relationship to everything else, that needs to be protected. That self, cherishing that self, that cherishing is holding on to the sense that there is someone in here whose compelling needs need to be met. Actually, it turns out to be the opposite, it's the compelling needs that construct the sense that there is someone in there who has them. You know when I first started practicing uh, I heard probably my first or my second or third talk about the three characteristics of existence, just as we've done them here, and uh, people taught about uh, impermanence and I certainly got that. talked about suffering, and I got that, and then they talked about no separate self, and I thought they're completely wrong. Uh, there certainly is a separate self. I feel myself to be me, but two out of three I thought was pretty good. And I liked the rest of what they said, so I decided to stay. <laughs> it's an elusive uh, awareness. We're so used to identifying in that particular way. Even today I got an email, one of those. Joke emails, it's a list of uh, mocking remarks, couched in Dharma language. It's actually quite funny. One of the remarks was, uh, If there is no self, whose arthritis is this? (laughs) I mean, we feel like that. Ten years ago, um, my husband and I, and James, were uh, part of a group of people who went to uh, India. to uh, study with uh, Sri Punja, Punjaji, wonderful teacher in the Advaita tradition, no longer living. And uh, that's a tradition that teaches very much from the point of view of the non-dual. And uh, we spent three weeks there, I think, and it was wonderful. We were just, we'd go to Darshan every day. Everyone was exalted. It was a wonderful feeling to be there. And it's so clear. Uh, Punjaji was such a skillful teacher and he would direct one after another people in individual dialogues, he would direct them to the experience of no separate self. Someone would come in and say, I got up this morning and I was really uh, fatigued, or I was really perplexed, and he would say something like, where is the I that's perplexed? And they'd suddenly get it, where is the I that's perplexed? Perplexion or whatever is not there at that moment, so the eye that's perplexed, and they'd suddenly get it and they'd burst into laughter and it was an exalted me- feeling for the whole group. everybody got it because that sort of moment of shared understanding of the truth is it's exotic and it's thrilling anyway, we spent some weeks there, and we came back into our life here, and not that long afterwards um. Something happened in the course of the day, I can't remember what it was. I actually don't even remember which one of my children was involved in the story, one or another of them, the now adult children, but um, even then adult children. But when I, my husband and I met at the end of the day, and we were recounting the day, I said, about whichever son or daughter it was, I said, I'm so annoyed, so angry at so and so. This and this happened, that I'm so angry at them. And he said in his best Punjaji way, he said, where is the I that's angry? And I said, don't give me any of that guff. Uh, (laughs) You know that there's no I, I know that there's no I, there's no I here and there's no I there. But anger exists and suffering exists. And that's really an important thing to recognize, you don't have to have an I to (laughs) suffer, actually. The I is completely separate. I mean, suffering exists. It doesn't, anger exists and anger is suffering. You don't have to feel it's my anger to have it hurt. Anger is suffering. It is suffering. Pain is pain. Anger is anger. Anger is suffering. Worry is suffering. Fear is suffering. Every afflictive emotion that tightens the mind is suffering. Doesn't matter if it belongs to somebody or not. It's extra, actually. It's like a flu. When you have the flu, it's very unpleasant, but nobody imagines that they are the flu. Just the flu is here. The flu is here, and in two days the flu will be here. But currently the flu is here. That's the same. Anger is here, after a while it won't be. Despair is here, after a while it won't be. Owning it is extra. Makes all kinds of problems because then you have to think, people say this sometimes, they say, I am filled with anger. Well, you know. where? Um, or I'm a very angry person. That's such a bad opinion to have of oneself. <laughs> I mean, it might be true to say, you know, one of the things that's true is that anger arises with me quite easily. I mean, some people have a shorter fuse than others, so they're just wired that way. But why take on the, the the pain of of that sort of identification? I'm a very angry person. I am a greedy person. People have different metabolism, different karma, different neurology. Different afflictive emotions arise in different amounts at different times of thought. I like very much that Albert Einstein called the sense of separateness an optical delusion. And often we talk about optical illusions. We think that uh, there's someone who owns an experience because an experience happens. There's no one who owns anything, really. It's like thoughts. We think because, I guess it was... uh, Descartes who said Descartes who said Je pense donc je suis I think therefore I am I think it's exactly not that thoughts happen they don't necessarily construct a thinker they just happen there's some sort of c- uh, cerebral process that makes thoughts out of impressions it's a lucky thing then we can make ra- then rational decisions happen memory propels us home to Houses that are the ones we should be in, you notice I'm leaving out all the eyes in that sense. Life unfolds in a way that we can live together without there being anybody at home. Actually, I think about that sometimes in terms of the fact when I'm on the highway and I think to myself, everybody, all this heavy machinery rolling up and down the highway, and no one, many of them, because <laughs> you're quite a scare when you think about it all of a sudden. It's not about having, not having intense feelings. When we were with Punjaji, I remember one day uh, James um, played him a, a certain cassette tape, do you remember that? played him a cassette tape of a child who was inordinately wise about love. And it was very touching. And uh, it was particularly touching to watch the two of them together because the tape wasn't so clear and Punjaji couldn't hear so well. And so James would have to. James had brought the tape. He'd play one sentence, and then he'd have to explain it to Punjaji. And then he'd play the next sentence, and then he'd repeat it to him. The next sentence, I repeat it to him. And uh, all of a sudden, when it cut to the denouement, the most touching line, all of a sudden, Punjaji burst into tears. So we all, you know, sitting there. Everyone who had been taking photos of this whole interchange put away the camera, you don't want to take a picture of the guru crying. <laughs> or James looking dismayed about having caused the guru to cry. <laughs> and, uh, it's a very touching moment, actually. and you think, what's going to happen next? And he cried for a minute or two, and then he stopped. And then it was finished, and then he looked at someone else and he said, uh, Did you get your plane your train tickets to Benares yet? (laughs) It's just finished. It just happened and it was finished. You know, that things happen. It's not like it's not like emotions don't happen, that pathos doesn't move your heart or anger doesn't fire up your heart. Everything happens. It just happens and it finishes. Everything becomes vibrant, really. It's all ephemeral. It's just all coming and going. If there's no grabbing, no solidifying, then there's no suffering. There's a line from a Hindu teaching. I only remember the first of it. And it requires that you actually see it written because it says self is the only friend of self. And the first self is a capital S. And it would mean what in Buddhist talk we would call it big mind. That spacious non-dual realization in which we rest knowing that this illusory sense of me and my life and my problems and my troubles is really the the creation of the trouble of the pain of the moment this little separate self not really there we contract around it because it feels like it needs to be cared for. But whatever the pain is, it's just the coming and going of the pain of the moment. That big space in which it comes and goes is the friend of that pained, specious, in fact, sense of self. I guess it's not a specious sense, it's a because it is the real sense of a self, it's just extra, it's not there. Self is the only friend of self, and self, self's only foe, so that second part of it is that little self, is really the foe, really tries so hard to stay alive, it's, so mu- it's in so much, it, it is the source of suffering and yet it just hangs on, clings, like Velcro. Such a habit. Sometimes people have the sense, you know, if I just relaxed, my mind would just be completely spacious, but then I wouldn't remember who I was. Alas, we remember all too quickly, all the whole stories. Come rushing back in a second. There are moments of such sublime, freedom from that separate self. My friend and teacher Joseph Goldstein, quoting some ancient sage, said, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. (laughs) It it took me years and years, and and still now I love that. I think about that. I know it's true. One of the reasons that it took me so long in my own meditation practice, to settle down and stop telling myself stories and really be present for this moment, this moment, and this moment, is that I certainly so didn't want to give up that separate self and its delightful stories. I'm a pretty good storyteller, and I liked telling myself stories, they kept me comfortable. And I think I was afraid of what would happen if I let go of them. They didn't always tell me great stories, my storyteller. Sometimes they're painful stories. I think I was willing to put up with the painful stories because I was afraid of what happens if you give up all the stories. What if that special separate self that I have nurtured and cared for and actually are am so fond of and talked to all the time, what if she disappears? Maybe it's a little bit like um, presiding at your own death. I thought about it the other day when I talked about um, the practice presiding at your own death. That death of a sense of a separate, of that separate self. It wasn't there, you know, but anyway, letting it go feels like. I thought about it the other day, and only talked about it a little bit when I talked about ardency remember I said I'd been listening to an aria, you know, a, Mozart, a Mozart aria, where the tenor in his ardency is singing, I would die for this prize. And I was thinking about what, and I said about what would we give our lives from for? And I thought about today, what, what are, are we ardent enough to let that sense of a separate self die? That is, I think, what dies in this process. It's not us, it's not the body. What actually dies is an idea. Nothing really dies. It's just an idea that there's someone there. Every tension that arises in the mind recreates the idea that there's someone who owns that tension and has it. Every tension that arises in the mind, unrecognized, recreates the sense of a separate self. We have all the time impressions and responses. We're supposed to, it's supposed to be true that tension arises in the mind. It's a good thing, we know how to take care of ourselves. Get cold, we think, I'm cold. We put on a sweater, we don't think coldness arose. I mean, on, a, on a moment-to-moment level, it makes it, it, first of all, that's the way that we take care of ourselves. We are self-oriented. But somehow knowing that that self-orientation is a product of tension arising, it disappears when the tensions are gone, begins to dehabituate the mind from the idea that there is someone perpetually there. See, through the habit, we deconstruct the habit of protecting that separate self. And say, I have to give up the self. It's actually not, that's not true, because we can't give up something that wasn't there. Giving up the idea that it was there. We're actually giving up ignorance. We're getting wiser. That's what James was talking about last night. We sit here and this comes and carries on and for a while there's a storm and then it's gone. And then there's another storm and then it's gone. And any number of people come into interviews and they say, remember that storm of yesterday? It's gone. And you know, then the next day again of course there'll be another storm and another storm. And sometimes I think why we've come here so long is just to have enough storms pass that we kind of know, after a while, that's what's happened. Storms arise, they pass away. Storms arise, they pass away. It's not supposed to be different from that. It's kind of like the weather channel. Storms arise and pass away, and they arise and pass away, according to conditions. It's not a problem about the storms. It's a problem if we think that the storm is going to stay there forever, and that it's a mistake, the storm. The storms are lawful, and they pass. We don't become different people in terms of our personality. I worried about that. Uh-oh. If I give up my separate self with the delight, the idea of a separate self, and my uh, storyteller who is so interesting to me, will I be a nothing? Will I become a completely different personality? Will I walk around and not say anything? I don't actually think so. I think <laughs> what, what goes is ignorance and the personality. For better, for worse, I think stays, more or less. <laughs> many many years ago, um, our friend Jack Cornfield, then my teacher, said to me something, on retreat I said, I see so clearly this particular personality habit of mine, I can't bear it, it's just so unpleasant to me. I'm so dramatic, I just, I'm, just make such a deal out of everything. I said, from now on it's just painful to me to realize that I'm not going to do it anymore. When I get home you see a new person. And he said, I don't think so. (laughs) He said, I think we get issued one personality and one body for the trip. And I think we do. I think we do. And for better or for worse, this is the karmic package. This is the Buddha, through many births. In the wandering on, I ran seeking, but not finding the maker of this house. Dukkha is birth again and again and again. Housemaker, you have been seen. You shall not make a house again. All your beams are broken up. The ridge is destroyed. The mind has gone to the unconditioned, to cessation, to the destruction of craving. It has arrived. Really, it's in the making up of the story and how the story gets tell- told and the habits of the mind that make up the story. We are deconstructing the habit that takes the story personally. Maybe that's all we're doing. We're also sifting through the recollections of this life that have startled us one way or another out of our natural loving and becoming the natural lovers that we completely are. Being able to cherish. Sometimes I think about the cherishing response as being the natural compassionate response of the heart. That we hold this world tenderly, that we cherish it when we recognize actually that it's completely broken, irreparably, from the beginning, from birth, before any of the extra pains from greed and hatred and delusion that we inflict on each other, that we cherish because it's really the only safe refuge from the pain of separateness, of doing this alone. But sometimes I think we just cherish because cherishing is so pleasurable. That that open heart cherishing wakes us up into our lives. That open heart cherishing happens when uh, we deconstruct that self, when that habit isn't happening. When we forget ourselves in a certain way, it's like lovers in the ardency, when they say, I give myself totally to you, I would die for you, those are lovers' words. I think when we forget ourselves, we die, and we are born into freedom. I thought I would read to finish a reflection of Albert Einstein's, he read this, strange is our situation here on earth, each of us comes for a short visit not knowing why, yet seeming to divine a purpose, from the standpoint of daily life however, there is one thing we do know, that we are here for the sake of others above all for those upon whose smile and well-being our own happiness depends, and also for the countless unknown souls with whose fate we are connected by the bond of sympathy. Many times a day I realize how much my own inner and outer life is built upon the labors of my fellow men, both living and dead, and how earnestly I must exert myself in order to give in return as much as I have received And I'm still receiving. So we'll sit for just a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstyn at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 11, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.